Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis, from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at nof.org. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bone Talk. I'm Claire Gill, Interim CEO of the National Osteoporosis Foundation, and joining me to discuss some of the top research in the field of osteoporosis from the past decade is Dr. Felicia Cosman, co-editor-in-chief of the journal Osteoporosis International and professor of clinical medicine at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. For those of you who might not be aware, Osteoporosis International is an international multidisciplinary publication that provides a forum for communication and exchange of current research related to the diagnosis, prevention, treatment, and management of osteoporosis and other metabolic bone diseases. We know that approximately 10 million Americans over the age of 50 have osteoporosis or low bone mass. A recent study NOF commissioned from the actuarial firm Millman found that 2 million Medicare patients suffered 2.3 million fractures based on 2015 data. Yet only 9% received a bone mineral density test. Research on osteoporosis has brought about many advancements in care, which can help to prevent 50% of repeat fractures. So let's talk about some of the important research over the past decade and how it has changed how healthcare providers diagnose and treat osteoporosis and what that means for patients. Dr. Cosman, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks very much. So the journal Osteoporosis International, as I mentioned, is co-led by the National Osteoporosis Foundation in the United States and the International Osteoporosis Foundation in the UK, and it's the premier journal covering the clinical field of osteoporosis. We're talking today about some of the top research included in the journal over the past decade. I would imagine that it wasn't very easy to summarize something like that, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. To prepare for this discussion, I reviewed about 100 highly cited papers published in Osteoporosis International over the last 10 years. And obviously, we don't have anywhere near enough time to discuss all of the contributions to the field that have been highlighted in the journal. But I did call the papers, which I think have the greatest interest and importance to both our patients and their healthcare providers. Okay, terrific. Well, let's start with research that affects how patients are diagnosed and treated. Can you tell us about any research that addresses the approach to the patient? You bet. So the first, the National Osteoporosis Foundation Clinician's Guide was published in 2014, and that covers the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of osteoporosis. Just to remind everybody, osteoporosis is defined as a loss of bone strength that increases the risk of breaking or fracturing a bone during normal daily activities or minor falls or accidents. The clinician's guide describes the measures that everybody should follow, including reducing risk factors, if possible, stopping or reducing doses of medicines that are known to have adverse effects on the skeleton, if possible, stopping smoking, limiting alcohol intake, reducing the risk of falling. And it also includes nutritional recommendations and exercise recommendations to maximize bone health. 
The guide talks about two important tests that people who are at risk should get. The gold standard is the bone density test. This measures uh, bone density of the spine and hip and provides an assessment of bone strength that's critical to determine whether you're at risk for fractures or not. The other important test is equally important and not as well known, and that's the uh, spine imaging test. This is a separate outcome, a separate measurement, but can also be done on the bone density machine or just using a regular spine x-ray. And it shows if there are any abnormally shaped vertebral bones, which can be a clue that there have already been spine fractures, a much more advanced spine of osteoporosis. Height loss and curvature of the spine can be important signs of these fractures, but they often don't produce any symptoms for months or even years. And so testing is the only way to find them. Another paper that is kind of like a complement to the NOF guide is a 2019 publication from the International Osteoporosis Foundation, and that covers management of osteoporosis outside the United States and discusses a lot of the same uh, principles, of course, that are in the NOF guide. Another key paper about diagnosis was published in 2014 by Dr. Ethel Cyrus and colleagues. And here, they propose a clinical definition of osteoporosis that basically says if you've had a major fracture, such as the hip or spine or pelvis or arm, you should be diagnosed as having osteoporosis, even if your bone density is not in the diagnostic range for osteoporosis. So the fracture is actually more important than the bone density measurement. And this is a really important concept because it helps us focus on the most important important thing that we're really worried about in osteoporosis, and that is fractures, and it helps us target treatment to the people who need it the most. That's really interesting and really important advances that have been made over the past decade. I understand, too, that the NOF Clinician's Guide will be updated this year. That update will also appear in the Osteoporosis International Journal in the future, correct? Absolutely, and that's going to be key for everybody who's interested in osteoporosis to have access to and to read. It's going to update a lot of what we had in 2014 and discuss even some of the new medical strategies which have become available since the 2014 guide was published. Terrific. Well, let's talk a little bit now about some of the new research that was done on risk assessment over the past decade. We know that a bunch of papers show that hip fracture rates are actually starting to go up again after what looked like a 10-year decline. And it's almost inconceivable to me when I think about this, but we are treating fewer than 10% of patients around the country who have suffered from hip fractures, which is the most important consequence of osteoporosis. And on top of that, we're not finding the majority of patients who have spine fractures, as I just said. And so we're really missing the opportunity to help many of our patients who are at the highest risk for more fractures. This concept was highlighted in a very important study published last year in 2019, and it was the largest study of its kind. The authors identified almost 380,000 women who were 65 years of age and older who had had a recent fracture, and they found that the risk of subsequent fracture was 1 in 10 in the very next year after the first fracture occurred, and one in five over the next 
two years after the first fracture occurred. And that's why it's so critical to treat patients who've had recent fractures with potent osteoporosis medication. If we treat these patients quickly, we can make a difference, a real difference in the ultimate consequences of multiple fractures and the domino effect, the concurrence of multiple fractures over a short Mm -hmm. period of time. We can reduce pain, disability, loss of quality and quantity of life. Another paper that is very important to the field in the area of uh, risk assessment is a description of the absolute fracture risk assessment tool that's called FRAX. And that's the brainchild of my co-editor-in-chief, Dr. John Canis. The idea of FRAX is to allow us to calculate an individual's tenure risk of having a fracture by adding clinical risk factors such as age, weight, family history, medical and medication history, all into a website with the bone density information included. And then the web-based tool calculates the person's tenure risk of having a fracture. And this has allowed us to identify some of the patients who don't meet obvious criteria for being high risk, but who are with this tool found to be at considerable risk for fracture and in some cases should be treated. That's really interesting. And I have a question, Dr. Cosman, for patients. So obviously making sure that patients as well as clinicians know that the first sign of the first fracture is a really and critical juncture for making sure that you follow up with your doctor to determine whether or not you should be on treatment and which treatment to take. But for the FRAX tool, as you mentioned that it's a web-based tool, if a patient wants to know what their potential FRAX score is and take that information to their doctor who may or may not use FRAX depending on if they're a bone health specialist or not. Is If they have their T-score, is there a possibility for a patient to enter their information into the FRAX tool and then sort of bring that information with them to a provider appointment or is yes, it only absolutely. providers who do it? No, uh, patients can do this also. It's a readily available tool and we can provide the uh, website for patients to access it, input the clinical information that's requested, and they can calculate their fracture risk numbers themselves. Okay, terrific. Well, we'll do that. I'll provide that in the notes to this broadcast so that patients know where to find that. And just again, highlighting though, it's really important that patients just take that information with them as a conversation tool with their physician. There's nothing they themselves need to do with that information, but it would be a great conversation starter for them to discuss what their fracture risk is with their provider. Absolutely. For people who've had a recent fracture, they don't actually need to go to FRAX and and their risk of having a subsequent fracture is actually much higher than what the FRAX tool is going to show. That is the key thing. If we could just find, as you said, these 2.3 million people who are having fractures every year, if we could just target those people with appropriate treatment, we would make a huge difference in the clinical and and the public health costs of osteoporosis. Truly important. And and we definitely focus on that at NOF is trying to, you know, explain to people how fracture begets fracture. So it's really important to follow up once you've had a fracture. So one of the other things that patients look to NOF for, obviously, is information about preventing osteoporosis. And I know that there have also been studies that have been reported in Osteoporosis International about some of the advancements on what we know about preventing bone loss and bone disease. Can you highlight some of those? 
You bet. So we know that one of the most important ways to prevent osteoporosis later in life is to try to build as much bone as we can during our youth. And the skeleton is, in fact, the most responsive to the influences of nutrition and physical activity in our early years. So getting enough calories, protein, calcium, vitamin D, and exercise, both to get your heart rate up and to build strength of the muscles, are really important in allowing the skeleton to get as dense as possible during the peak, which occurs usually by around the age of 20. And we know for young women, Maintaining a normal weight and and having uh, regular menstrual function are also really important at building up this peak bone mass. And then there are several important studies that talk about nutrition and physical activity in our older years also. And uh, this area has been very controversial over the last five, ten years. And I wouldn't say that the controversy is completely settled at this point. But most experts believe that calcium and vitamin D should be supplemented if the diet is insufficient. In general, for adults, we're talking about a total calcium intake, including what you obtain from your diet and any supplements you take as about 1,200 milligrams per day. For vitamin D... The optimal dose varies quite a bit, and some people will have enough with just a 400 to 800 unit a daily supplement, but others may need 5,000 units a day or even more, and blood tests can help determine the optimal dose for individual patients, and I, I would recommend that the vitamin D blood test be performed certainly in patients who've already had fractures or who have diseases that we know reduce the absorption of vitamin D. It's also kind of harder to get from natural sources. Sunlight, we go out with sunblock on now in, in the summer, and not everybody wants to eat canned sardines which with bones, which are also a great source of vitamin D. So sometimes that is one of the ones that we suggest people make sure they get a supplement for, correct? I agree, and I think it's really hard to get it just from diet, and that's why we evolved this ability to make vitamin D in our skin. It kind of makes up for the dietary deficiency, but when we block the skin's ability to make it, which we agree with, of course, we know that sunlight increases the risk of skin cancer, so we recommend avoiding direct sun and wearing sunblock when out in the sun, but of course, we need to make sure that we have enough vitamin D through a supplement when it's necessary, especially people who have osteoporosis or are at risk for it. And another key area that I think has been talked a lot about in our journal, but you're going to hear a lot about it over the next few years, is something called sarcopenia. And this refers to the loss of muscle that occurs as we age. And we know that losing muscle mass has a big influence on bone mass and sarcopenia, loss of muscle mass, also increases our risk for falling. Several uh, papers in OI address this issue of sarcopenia, and it looks like we can fight against this muscle loss with a regular resistance or weight training type of program to strengthen the large muscle group, and that overall, 
a combination of muscle strength training, a high impact weight bearing activity as possible for each individual and a balanced training program to reduce falls will all together have uh, the greatest effects to reduce the likelihood of fractures occurring. Yeah, that's hugely important and obviously also a topic that a lot of people approach the National Osteoporosis Foundation about, you know, what's the correct type of exercise and how much exercise. And we're doing a lot of work in conjunction with colleagues in Osteoporosis Canada on our new bone fit program, training physical therapists and personal trainers about how to properly work with people with osteoporosis. And as you know, we're also working on a position statement with the American College of Sports Medicine about exercise and physical activity throughout the lifespan for bone health. So we are trying to follow up on all of these. And as you said, so many important papers being published in our journal about it. And we then try to translate that and make that available to patients and caregivers, which will be you know, available on NOF's website. Really important initiative. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the, the exercise paper. You know, it's one of the common questions that I've been asked over 30 years of being an osteoporosis clinician, you know, what can I do besides medicine when it's needed to help make my bones stronger? And of course, we know how important exercise is for multiple chronic diseases. And the journal has highlighted how important it is for bone and muscle as well. Even patients on treatment need to make sure that they do, you know, proper exercise and keep their bone and muscle strength, as you said, up while they're undergoing treatment. So let's let's talk a little bit now about some of the research advances that have been made in treatments. I mean, we're very fortunate that over the last 30 years, we've come a long way from nothing to some really pretty impressive options for treating this disease and um, new treatments even. Can you kind of highlight for us what's been put in the journal that reflects medications? Yeah, of course. So yes, as you point out, there have been several medicines that have been approved by the FDA for osteoporosis treatment over the last decade. And they're all really potent medicines and they're appropriate for patients who are at high risk for fracture. These aren't medicines that you would use to prevent osteoporosis in patients who don't have it. And they include two bone building medicines, one called abaloparatide that was approved in 2017 and one called romosozumab approved in 2019. Both very powerful medicines and have been covered in OI. Uh, Denosumab was approved in 2010, and it's also a very powerful option. It's a twice-yearly injection medicine targeted monoclonal antibody to a protein that gets the whole process of bone dissolution and bone degradation started. So it, it inhibits that whole process. And there have been multiple papers about this medicine in the last uh, decade in our journal. We know that denosumab improves DMD and reduces risk of fracture across the skeleton. But really important for patients to be aware of is that if you stop denosumab, the effects go away quickly. And in fact, there can be important clinical consequences to this, and especially with respect to vertebral fractures in patients who suddenly stop denosumab without a a plan in place for an alternative therapy. And I think this is, as you and I have talked about, particularly important in this crazy time as we're living through the COVID-19 pandemic. People cannot 
stop their osteoporosis medication. And if you find that, you know, your center where you're usually able to receive the denosumab treatment is not able to give it to you any longer, you have to find an alternate place to get the medicine. And of course, we're going to try to help make sure that people are able to get this medication to prevent these fractures from occurring. Yeah. Well, that's true of all the injectable medications that are currently available, right? People need to try to stay on their schedule with that as best they possibly can. And as you said, you know, things are changing daily at the moment on where people will be able to get their injectable osteoporosis medications. And then for those that are done at home, either the oral or the injectable, then patients should make sure that they have at least a month's supply of medication available to them while we kind of, as she said, work through this COVID-19 pandemic. I would also imagine that with the denosumab, which has been, as you said, since 2010, there's more research being done over it over the last decade because it was, you know, already out there and people have an opportunity to be able to do more research with it. We will likely see the same for the newer medications as well, right? For the next 10 years, there will likely be more kind of studies about those medications and their implications and their benefits and risks as well. Do you think? There are still a lot of questions about how we can utilize both the bone building drugs and the drugs that prevent deterioration of bone in sequence with each other that makes the most sense to attain the biggest benefits at the lowest cost and the the lowest cost to individuals in terms of the amount of effort required to treat themselves. So a lot of research is aimed at trying to kind of figure this out over the long Mm -hmm. term. We know that women, you know, early after menopause or around the time of menopause, lose a lot of bone. And there are medicines that are particularly appropriate to help prevent that bone loss. But none of those is a medicine that you want to stay on for the rest of your life. And so rotating medicines, changing medicines over different decades of life or different stages of life is kind of the way we're looking at this in the long view. And there's a lot of research aiming at trying to understand the best way to do this for our patients at risk. Well, I know we've only covered some of the important areas of research in osteoporosis that have happened over the past decade, but it is really encouraging to know that we've made such significant advances in how to diagnose and risk assessment, prevention, and treatment of osteoporosis. I certainly hope the next decade is even more robust in research and advancements in treating this debilitating disease. And thank you so much, Dr. Cosman, for sharing this information with us, and I'm sure we'll do subsequent interviews with you about future research that appears in osteoporosis and national as well. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit nof.org.